and welcome to Voyager, A Theological Journey. I'm Captain Rainway and this is my unruly crew. I'm Will Nicholas. And I'm Lindsay Cullen. Marching meta-narrative is that they're going as fast and as hard as they can, you know, back towards Federation space. No, they're not. They're poking their nose into everything. And that really annoys me, I have to say. See and hear all of our quirks and foibles as we work together as a team. Welcome to Star Trek Voyager, a theological journey. I'm back from an alternate timeline to join the the crew again. And uh, Elizabeth, take us off with a, a, a summary of this week's episode. Well, this week's episode was certainly an interesting one. Voyager encounters a spatial distortion ring that soon surrounds the ship, and as it gets closer to them, it wreaks havoc on all their systems throughout the ship and reconfigures the layout of the decks and the room placement. The crew struggles to find their way around the ship to implement various solutions to save Voyager, and what a cliffhanger we have at the end. Certainly um, something was wreaking havoc somewhere. Um, there, there was a lot that was reeking about this particular episode. Um, I, I, uh, I have to say um, th- that uh, I was a little unsatisfied with the, uh, the, the beginning um, or the middle uh, and the end as well. So um, maybe I'm being a little harsh, but usually I'm accused of liking things too much for the sake of liking them and finding the good points where there aren't any. But I really found that uh, this twisted episode was uh, quite distorted. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was my week off or what, but I, I think um, Elizabeth's rubbing off on me because the, <laughs> the first thing that I thought when I was watching this episode is a, a, an anomaly in space, in, in three-dimensional space, is not the same as a log across the road. <laughs> Why do you have to go up to this thing? Why couldn't you just steer around it, leaving plenty of plenty of space? You know, it it did strike me as, in this particular case, as being a case of, well, why would you bother? And uh, it just led to uh, chaos and um, uh, I suppose it led to an episode of Star Trek Voyager. Well, obviously it did lead to an episode of Star Trek Voyager because we've all just watched um, this. I, like Will, found it rather unsatisfactory. Um, I mean, it was an interesting concept having the spatial sort of set out of the ship keep being rearranged like some ancient labyrinth that kept changing its, its boundaries. But um, to have it all resolved as it did in the end was, has to be said, the quick fix of the century, honestly. Full reverse, Ensign. Aye, sir. We can't go backwards either, Mr. Tuvok. The distortion has completely surrounded us like a ring. If we cannot go around it, then we will have to go through it. We, uh, we can't go round it. We, we can't go under it. We can't go over it. We'll have to go through it. Uh, were, they, were they going on a bear hunt? I'm not sure. Um... <laughs> One of the things that surprised me was that uh, IMDb gives this a 7.1, which is actually pretty big, pretty big for a sci-fi episode, um, and, um, and the fans seem to like it. But, uh, look, I want to take um, um, a word from our fans. Um, last week, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Amanda, and I um, got some feedback that said that we spent way too much being critical of the episode and not enough time drawing out <laughs> theological themes, and this is a, a theological voyage. So... We want to discipline ourselves to try and find um, the, the, uh, the, the morsels. And, and just because something is hard to find doesn't mean we should, uh, should avoid it. Um, I also wanted to note um, that our, our Patreon perk that says that Patreons are allowed to uh, come in as audience um, and, uh, and be flies on the wall, be Talshiar, um, spying from a distance, be... Uh, Obsidian Order Cardassians looking on from the sidelines um, is now up up and running. And so we do have uh, our two uh, big Patreon fans, um, Marie and and uh, Michelle, um, joining us today. Um, and they can't say anything because they're, they're just quiet audience in the background. But uh, it's great to have them on board. And if you'd like to be uh, a Patreon uh, with that level of perk, then please go to Never Odd or even Media on the Patreon page uh, and sign up and support us and we'll we'll uh, we'll provide you with uh, with uh, secret goodies that uh, only patreons can access 
Well, Will, before we dive into the the deep and no doubt profound uh, theological and philosophical ideas that come out of this episode, I did want to highlight a few little odds and sods which I found interesting. I, I think one of the first was just that Sandrine's is clearly becoming the crew hangout. It's no longer, you know, something that uh, Paris has has created just for himself and Ensign Kim and uh, select friends. This is now where they go to have a, a, a crew a crew party for Kessa's birthday. So I, I like that. That it, it talks to the the way the crew is bonding uh, as part of this uh, long long journey. The other thing that um, I found interesting was uh, the curious case of the single pip officer. I don't know if you noticed uh, Ensign yeah. Kim um, meeting up with a, a fellow who by his pips was a, a full lieutenant, two pips, um, uh, who seemed quite happy to take uh, directions and orders from Ensign Kim uh, as to what he should do as he wandered around the corridors. And um, <laughs> I, I called him gym guy. He'd been working out in the gym. He, yeah, yeah, look, I, I was a bit worried. I think maybe in next episode he's going to get his face ripped off by the Vidians maybe or... Um... You think you think he's being set up as a, a, an officer class red shirt? That's it. Uh, I mean, it was interesting that looking at uh, his pips and uh, Ensign uh, Kim's then led me to actually looking at the pips uh, for a number of characters, and I came across uh, a thing that um, uh, I hadn't noticed before, which is that the Maquis wear a different form of insignia. They have um, uh, a, a sort of a provisional striped insignia with uh, the different ranks shown rather than the uh, standard Starfleet pips. So uh, always worth noting that. And I, I saw in particular that Balana is wearing the provisional uh, insignia for a, a lieutenant junior grade. Uh, so she's not quite a full lieutenant yet. Did uh, Does Jacote have that as well? He does, yes. He's wearing, he's wearing the provisional uh, stripe uh, thing insignia for a, um, right. a commander. Oh, well, no wonder Tuvok is um, feeling his nose out of joint then that he didn't get that promotion. Thank you, sir. And since we are speaking candidly, may I say, sir, that I have not always been particularly partial to your methods either. I suppose it must have been tough for you to accept my being elevated to first officer over you. I have always respected Captain Janeway's decisions. However... I suppose that particular decision did put me in a position I am unaccustomed to. He was being particularly emotional for a Vulcan, wasn't he, this week? Was, um, being Feeling like he's, uh, he got snubbed by Janeway. He probably did get snubbed by Janeway. I mean, I thought it was quite a reasonable expectation <laughs> Tuvok had at that point that he would be appointed to commander after years of loyal service and going undercover, and instead one of the people he's spying on actually gets the gig. That would hurt, even if you are a Vulcan. Well, you've got to keep the quotas. Uh, in order to keep the politics on board, it needs to make sure that there's a, an equal representation of marquee leadership on board. Um, and so um, I think he was promoted for political Probably. reasons. Probably. Absolutely. Each, each faction's jockeying for their uh, cabinet position. That's right. <laughs> well, that could lead us into a biblical discussion, actually, because we've just had some revolting um, things from Samuel with David and uh, Saul and people getting killed and who's killing who and why they're doing it and watching the kings of Israel, even if they're revered like David and Solomon, systemically and systematically bump off anybody who might have a claim to the throne and um, do it under all sorts of interesting guises is, um, yeah, Seems to be life is normal there and, and nobody blinks an eye about it. And if people were doing that nowadays, it would probably be seen as terrible. You'd be really thought of as a tyrannical despot, but they just pop everyone off. Yes, and in fact, if you're not quick enough to kill people, then, uh, you know, the Lord um, casts you aside. So, you know, you you got to be quick with your dagger if you want to stay in God's Now, at the risk of becoming too political, well, um, I, I would suggest that perhaps the Nationals may have just done that this week, um, but um, <laughs> we, we won't spend too much time reflecting there. I want to say something about that. The idea of not only Banana Bee thinking that he's got the goods, that he can come back for a second run after what he's done, 
but he has moved straight into McCormack's position on in the Ministry for promoting and looking at things about women. Honestly, are they well, serious? He does, he does know more about Barnaby? sexual harassment than many other people in Canberra, I imagine, but I think his qualifications are in the wrong direction. He probably no. does. I think so. And the idea that, I mean, one of the things that was run as a story was is that part of the issue with Barnaby is that there's just a women's problem in how they view him. There's a reason for that, Peter Van Onselen. It's because Barnaby is a wretched harasser of women and he's got a track record that's miles and miles long. And so what do we do? We promote him into a group looking at women. Good. That says a lot, Scott Morrison, about how much you listen to women at those protests about how they're treated. So, I mean, I think the uh, thing that comes out uh, to me out of this discussion, both of, of, of politics and, you know, people wanting back in and, and also, you know, Tuvok's response is that one of the themes that I saw in this particular episode is the theme of jealousy. Yes, uh, you know, and of, of wanting what you can't have or, or, or what you suspect someone wants to take from you or whatever it might be. And I guess most obviously it was with uh, Kess and Neelix, but um, you've, you've raised the fact that there could be something there with uh, uh, Tuvok and his response to uh, having command or second in command taken away from him and uh, and a, a similar response in uh, Barnaby, uh, you know, who, who wasn't happy to... Uh, stay on the back benches. So uh, it raises the issue about, you know, jealousy. And I think we've touched on this before because jealousy is actually one of those words that's used uh, a few times in the uh, Hebrew scriptures to talk about God. I'm a jealous God. And I, I wonder what we think about that. Is jealousy good, bad, or indifferent? Well, certainly we see that jealousy throw its ugly head, its green-eyed monster into place when um, we we see Neelix, um, Tom Paris and the brooch. Uh, and, and I have to say, I mean, I, I was kind of teetering here in terms of social norms. Uh, you know, why would Tom Paris... Uh, unknown womanizer and uh, and and person who who is quite narcissistic in a lot of ways. Um, spend a couple of weeks rations on Kess unless he was actually proclaiming an interest uh, in forming a stronger relationship with her. He could just be proclaiming that he is fond of her and that it's a really good friendship. I was surprised. I have to say by the gift of the locket. Um, and why he would do that too. I felt it was out of character and it boded no good for me knowing Tom Barris's character and I found it a bit disturbing, Will, I have to say. But, I mean, it's quite possible it was just a very generous gesture of friendship. Yes, uh, I, I agree with you, Elizabeth. I think the minute I saw that locket, I thought to myself, that's not an appropriate gift for a, a colleague and, and, and friend like that, uh, particularly when you know they're in another relationship. I mean, usually when you give a, a locket to someone, uh, they're, you know, it, it's because you're a, a relative and can imagine them putting either your face or other close relatives that you both love in that locket or that you are uh, the loved one and, and are giving a locket to your your beloved, and uh, there's uh, the the expectation that they might put a, a picture of you in it. So yeah, I, I I really felt that both in terms of the style of gift and the expense of the gift, uh, that it wasn't what you would expect in a normal birthday gift from one friend or colleague to another. No, I agree, Lindsay. I mean, if they'd all put in for it, if all of them had contributed, you know, three hours rations or however it works towards it and it was a gift from the whole crew for her to put someone in it, I think that would have been okay. But when it's just a gift from Paris, I thought it was not okay. Such an expensive gift as well. Mm, uh, mm. It does raise that yeah. issue of jealousy, as you've said, Lindsay, and and, uh, and gets us to think a little bit around responsibility uh, and, and je jealousy, where jealousy originates from. So when we read the Old Testament, we hear lots of references to God's jealousy um, and uh, and really a, a, a request or, a, or an urging for the people not to do things that will actually make God jealous. And so there is kind of a, I guess, a responsibility uh, of us to, to, to not do things that will actually 
provoke jealousy in other people. And yet the the opposite is also true, that we're responsible for our own feelings and letting them fester and grow into into dangerous levels of of um of, of bitterness um as well. So there's it's it's a really interesting dynamic to explore there. Well I think Chakotay actually summed it up really well when Neelix asked him in the shifting corridors what it means to be jealous and how Chakotay understands it. And when he says, when you love someone, you take a risk and you're much more likely to be hurt because you love them or to be suspicious because you love them. And I think that's right. And I think the earlier instances we were talking about, they were jealousy about power and who wields it and who it's wielded over. If we're looking at things like Barnaby being jealous of McCormack, clearly that is not a love thing. It's about who has the power. So I think that when we look at the Old Testament and God says, I'm a jealous God, it's kind of a combination of both those things. It's about who's recognised as having the power, what deity, because we often forget uh, the earliest texts of the Old Testament aren't monotheistic. And what I mean by that is, is that Israel only has one God, but it's quite clear that all the other cultures around them have their own gods and that is recognised. It's not until you get up into the exile and post-exile that you get those long passages that say they're just idols and they're just made of stone and brass and wood and other things like that. Um, Early on, they're recognised as being God. So that's why you've got Ten Commandments that says, I am a jealous God. And that's why the two big things the prophets rail against always are syncretism, that is, they're worshipping Baal. That's a big deal, and it runs right through the whole Old Testament. And the second is justice things about how you treat the poor and oppressed. And they're the two great things of the Old Testament, if you like, in terms of what God is saying. So God is saying, I'm a jealous God, so if you worship Baal or Dagon or one of those other gods, I'll probably smite you, and it won't be pretty. Yeah, which which is not necessarily the kind of behaviour that I want from God. I mean, I, I you know, okay, fair enough that um, God desires people to follow uh, God's self because that is the best way. Um, but you know, the, the the whole, you know, if you don't do this, I'll smite you. To to me, that that's the ugly side of jealousy. And I have to say, I struggle to see whether jealousy can ever be a positive, like a a constructive emotion, an emotion which we would want someone to have. Um, Because it seems to me that that inevitably, it's about either wanting something that we don't have, I'm jealous that, you know, such and such has got a Tesla and I want one, um, or it's a, a misplaced uh, sense of of concern that someone might have something that actually they don't. So that, for instance, with with uh, Kess and Neelix, uh, there's actually nothing for Neelix to worry about in terms of Kess and her uh, faithfulness and steadfastness. Yes, Paris might be acting in inappropriate ways, and it's appropriate to be unsettled or uh, offended by his inappropriateness, but. Um, uh, Neelix has actually not got any backing for a sense that somehow he's losing Kess or that Paris has some uh, hold over her that he, Neelix, doesn't have. So I I really struggle with whether jealousy, as we think about it, is ever a good emotion, is ever an emotion that's appropriate. Neelix does say it makes him feel horrible. And I think it makes most of us feel horrible. Maybe it twists us inside, causes us to be feeling like we're stuck inside a spatial anomaly that's turning us and twisting us around. <laughs> and and, and I, 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 um, I really think that what needs to happen here is that, that, that both Paris um, and, and Neelix are kind of um, uh, playing around the boundaries of their relationship um, and they haven't yet as yet set any boundaries. Um, and um, I guess what they need to do is go off together and actually um, work this out, have a good chat about what what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, because, um, as you say, it could be that, that Paris is just generously, naively blundering into a boundary-crossing exercise um, and that even if he has some intention towards um, Kess, um, Neelix does have a right to actually say, hey, this is this is my boundary here. Um, this is the relationship that I'm working on and I need you not to compromise that relationship. In the end, though, both of them have to accept 
Kess's freedom to actually decide where her boundaries are. And so it really does show how complex our interpersonal relationships are um, because we, we – we, and and this, this idea of the love triangle um, is a major trope in so many different movies um, and, um, and, and TV shows. So, so I guess it's a big issue um, of the human condition. It's also a literary device. I'm glad, Will, that you did um, uh, put in that bit about Kessa's freedom because up until then, I'm afraid it, it was sounding a little bit like uh, two males, you know, fighting over mm. who has the right to have a, a relationship with the, the third person. And I think, you know, um, absolutely, uh, Neelix uh, and um, uh, what's his name? Paris uh, can have discussions about their boundaries, but in the end, uh, it's Kess's boundaries with uh, Paris that uh, should, you know, hold sway. And, um, uh, you know, she she shouldn't be told by Neelix who she can be friends with or how she wants to conduct that friendship. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, when people are seen to be a, a bit obsessively jealous, it's often accompanied by coercion and control and forms of violence whether they're physical or psychological, and we know that from looking at relationships that are not healthy where women, mostly, some men, but mostly women, are threatened. So I feel that Neelix's jealousy is starting to border on the pathological, uh, and he probably does need to not only get that under control but do as you suggest, Lindsay. He needs to work out clearly with Kess and with Parrots where those boundaries are and when they're being stepped over. And I think it's interesting that that it it does come across to me in this episode as a bit of a throwback, uh, and I, I think it actually relates to to what uh, Will was uh, uh, telling us um, a few episodes back that um, these uh, few episodes at the start of uh, uh, the season were actually ones that were meant for the end of the first season, and then they got put in the second season, but put in in a different order. And, and I do uh, wonder whether this particular one maybe uh, originally was planned to go earlier when that theme of Neelix's jealousy of Paris was was more of a running thing. Uh, and it, it did seem like a, a little bit of a throwback to me uh, in this episode. I thought they'd sort of gotten a bit beyond that. You're right, because according to the notes I've got on um, Alpha uh, Fandom, it says that this was meant to be the penultimate episode of season one and they'd run out of money, mm. which is why they spent so much time apparently having characters wander around shifting corridors. It was cheap. Well, and that, that makes a lot more sense with all of the, the hand-holding and angsty glares and looks at the end is like this building this tension to say, are we going to, is this the end? Are we finished? Are we done? Um, maybe the crew was... Um, was was channeling some of their own fears about whether or not they were going to be axed as a series, um, and that the uh, the, <laughs> the spatial rift may have uh, twisted them out of the the fandom of Star Trek. I I also think that the naivety written into the character of Kess accentuates the whole jealousy question. I mean, I I found it um almost uh almost over over sweet over cute. Um, that Kess is saying, why was everyone hiding? You know, like she, she's just, she's not, she's not, she's just turned two uh, and she really doesn't actually have a, a strong sense of the world um, and is, is out of step with, with other thing, things that, that others might find to be normal or natural in the social context. Well, she's not human, so she can be forgiven for not knowing strange human practices like surprise birthday parties. And the other thing I was thinking is the Ocompa were very protected by the caretaker mm. and they're in their little underground dugout unless the Kazon capture them as slaves. Um, her contact with the world, I don't know. What was it with the Ocompa? Did they contact the rest of the galaxy or the universe or anything? Um, why would she be expected to know some of that stuff? I would think that she couldn't reasonably be expected to know it. So, certainly, um, but there's a sense in which I think she, she, they overplayed it. I think a little bit. Yeah. They actually, um, you know, that 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 it was possible for. I would have thought that it would was possible for a reasonable person to put two and two together and go, okay, this is a custom or this is a. But but she seemed to be 
um, you know, uh, almost unable to actually um, work it out for herself. Um, uh, or perhaps she, her curiosity is just something of a forefront. And I, I imagine for a secluded race like the Alcompa, um, curiosity is going to become a forefront characteristic once they get out of the protection of their little, little, little caretaken hub. Yeah. They play up that naivety. And, and it's interesting that they do that specifically in terms of uh, like interpersonal romantic relationships where they mm. don't do that with her other relationships. She's actually shown, for instance, in her interactions with the doctor and the captain and as someone quite insightful and, and, and with a lot of emotional intelligence. Um, but then when it comes to this area of uh, romantic relationships, they play her as, as the sort of innocent ingenue. Um, uh, and, and I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I like that. You know, I, I think it plays into a whole bunch of stereotypes and tropes that, that are not actually helpful. And that may reflect its time, I suppose, of making. I thought that the episode where she um, was going through the, um, what mm. was it, the elogium? Um, I, I really liked her in that when she's grappling with whether she wants to be a mother and, and her sexuality and you learn things like we've got to be coupled for six days and different things. It was a completely different side of Kess, I thought. And I thought it showed a maturity and an understanding and a um, wisdom about what this means and what the potential problems, delights, whatever, are that would um, come from that. Um, and she seems to have slipped back in this episode into a, a, a pre-elogium state. And I think that's explained by the fact the episode was meant to be somewhere earlier. She um she seemed to to um to switch there, like you say, um, from being um the one who was being taught everything to the one who then had to teach um the crew and the captain about her culture. Um and and yeah. I think there's some interesting stuff there, probably drawing in from that previous episode where where it does become important um to allow ourselves to be to be taught um by by cultures that that actually aren't necessarily always um at the forefront of telling us who they are um and and sometimes we can just assume that people who aren't speaking out about things actually have nothing to say instead of actually taking the time to listen and and stopping to to ask questions uh and and i i I mean, I think there's something very admirable about Kess's cultural approach from that perspective in that um, she's she's really a sponge of uh, cultural interaction, wanting to, to take it all in uh, um, as much as possible. And I think that that uh, naivety can actually uh, play a, a really interesting and positive role uh, sometimes uh, in uh, contradistinction to the sort of cynicism of the person who is as worldly wise or whatever. And and I think that Star Trek regularly does this where the non-human characters uh, by just playing a deadpan curious role actually sort of uncover things about humanity uh, that, that humans have kind of either, um, you know, tossed aside in their cynicism or, or, or can't see because they're too close. And so that that sort of naive, why do you do this sort of question. Um, I, I, I'm sure, Elizabeth, when you go into places as, as an IIM and stuff like that, that's one of the things you do is you ask the naive yep. questions. Why do you do it this way? Uh, even when you, you might have a sense of why they do it that way and you'd like to undercut that, but but you ask the naive question and let them work through the issues of, of thinking, oh, well, why do we do it this way? Is there some good reason or... Yep, that's absolutely right. I do ask a lot of questions like why does this happen or why is this there or can you explain this to me, what this particular pattern or tradition is? And mostly they can't. That's always an interesting thing that you find when you do these things. Mostly they can't. And I find what I call dead cats, which is from the story of, you know, the monastery that tied up the, the cat. Um, um, you find dead cats everywhere where, or tied up cats everywhere where, you know, you say, why is that cat tied up? And they have no idea. They've just always done it that way. And so Star Trek does does actually have 
that phenomenon, as you say, Lindsay, that that um, you know characters like Wesley Crusher and Lieutenant Data, um, and um, and 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 you know Spock originally in the first series, um, the, Seven, of, Seven nine of Nine coming up later on. Um, we we do get this opportunity to 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 say well. Um, the character asks a question of the of the crew inside the episode, so that we can actually um, um, get an answer that perhaps the audience might not necessarily understand or know. So, so especially when we're talking about cultures and times that are actually beyond us, um, the blanks that can be can be filled in by a naive character um, asking a question um, are, are are really effective. Mm. Sounds like the Gospel of John. There's always characters that are naive in the Gospel of John asking questions. Well, the disciples, the disciples are naive most of the time, aren't they? <laughs> Clueless. That's right. Asking Jesus, you know, what do you mean by that? But I was thinking of Nicodemus and the woman at the well, and the and the disciples say, "Where has he got some bread from somewhere?" And there's many examples where it's and it is a bit of a literary device that you use you ask these naive questions to extract a particular answer so yeah yep a bit like question time in uh, in parliament really where they where they do exactly the same thing um. <laughs> no that's a ballet that's completely <laughs> choreographed now, i wanted to take us in a slightly different direction and pick up on uh, something that uh, will alluded to which is that you know in in the final parts of this uh, episode, perhaps the crew were sort of playing out some of their own uh, sort of uh, wondering and uh, anxiety about whether the show would be picked up and whatever. But again, it's also very clearly uh, an example of engaging with the, the mortal fear of death and particularly death as the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. And, and I thought there was some really interesting uh, stuff in in the episode as they confront this um, this oncoming whatever it's going to be that they all assume uh, is going to be their death. Uh, definitely, you know, there is that 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 extreme sense of of fear of the unknown, um, and um, you know, we we. I think we experience that as human beings all of the time, and and I wondered whether or not um, the the death we perceive as so frightening might actually just be a a, a ring of communication heading our way that will actually allow us to um, suddenly gain gigaquads of information in our database. <laughs> it might. I've never thought of it that way, but who knows. Well, I mean, it is an interesting thing because uh, I think, you know, there's a built-in human sort of response to death to see it as this this terrible and scary thing. And yet part of the uh, Christian message, and it's certainly not the whole of it, but part of the Christian message is actually this is, this is a necessary transition. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, I, I think in some ways it's exactly like that, isn't it? One of my favourite lines from a Star Trek movie comes from potentially one of the worst Star Trek movies. Oh, no, actually, that no, was quite a good Star Trek. No, number it was number five. four, actually, so it's a good one. So it was oh, an even-numbered okay. one, remembering that the, the rule of thumb is that even-numbered Star Trek movies are actually good and odd-numbered ones are usually good. bad. Yep. But in uh, in the, the journey mm. home, um, Dr. McCoy asks Spock the question, um, uh, you've come back from the dead. You've been been resurrected um i'm sure you've got some amazing insights to share with us about what it means to have to have died and come back and spock uh, replies and says doctor it would be impossible to have such a conversation about death without a common frame of reference and mccoy responds in his normal way um are you saying I have to die to actually talk to you about my insights about death but there is that sense in which um, it is so foreign and alien, so so different to us that 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 without a common frame of reference, um, the the information that might be given to us about passing through this may seem like um, an end or a death or something to be feared. And I think the crew really experiences that firsthand as the anomaly is coming towards them. They have no common frame of reference with the alien that's trying to communicate with them, and so it feels to them like like the fear of death. Well, having just put up that diagram that said the whole thing's going to be distorted and crushed within 68 minutes, it was very precise. Mm. Um, I can see why they feel that way, especially as they can see it working its way through the door. Mm. 
I, I thought actually that that diagram was not nearly as distorted as I wanted it to be. You know, I mean, you think of an Escher drawing or something like that, and and it really was just sort of bent around the edges, sort of. It it, it didn't, to me, really show what might be twisted by a, a, such a, an interdimensional thing. Um, and and I, I have to say, I, I found it uh, rather amusing that the uh, anomaly, it, it's a bit like uh, Lego, you know, I mean, it, it twists everything, but it always stops very neatly at the doors of the, the corridor sections and whatever, you know, they they never find themselves uh, running into uh, one corridor, which has come into the the middle of another, and and or or uh, bits of the ship poking out the wrong ways. It's all very nice and and neat, and it reminded me a bit actually of uh, when I'm teaching people about uh, synoptic gospels and and pericopes. Uh, you know, these little uh, bits of text that they're almost like Lego blocks that can be moved around, you know, just in their entirety. And the different synoptic gospels do exactly that and move them around in different orders in order to um, highlight particular themes or theological ideas. And I, I thought that this anomaly was a, a bit like that. It was very neat, wasn't it, as an anomaly? <laughs> well, it was. And I think that's also like a literary device in in the episode where, it's much more dramatic to have watch it burst through a door or to force a door open and have your arm sucked in than to have it just wandering at random in or lurking in corridors or corners where you just see it and walk into it. I found it very strange that uh, they, they got to the end of the Jeffrey's tube and, and they opened the door and there it is on the other side of the door. So they pull the captain out and close the door, you know, because it's going to stay on the other side there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it also was quite interesting that, that, that they gave us the impression that this, this, this distorted donut was actually closing in on them. At a at a at a measurable steady pace, but at certain times during the episode, it seemed to just be not moving at all. It was just kind of going, no. oh well. So yeah, I, I think. Um, but we're getting into to to uh, to to criticism of the episode again. Um, <laughs> well, coming coming back to to then their their um, you know last stand. One of the questions that that I thought was interesting that comes out of the conversation with uh, uh, Balana and um, I think it's Chakotay, is, is that question, is it ever right just to give up and stop? You know, I mean, Balana seems to be putting forward the proposition and, and I think quite understandably that a, a part of the human condition is that we continue fighting and, and I think we know that even in uh, end-of-life situations that, that people seem to just fight and fight and fight. Others seem more able to just give up and go, but uh, at least at least some of us have this inbuilt thing that you know you've got to fight to the bitter end. You can't just sort of stand there and say, "Oh well, let's just wait and and, and see what happens," as Chakotay suggests might uh, might be the right course of action. Oh, and Tuvok, I wanted to wanted to pick you up on your inherent uh, racism there, Lindsay. Um, you know, you said part of the human condition. I actually think it was far more the Klingon condition that was actually causing her to want to stay fighting. Um, but um, I, I get the general gist of what you're saying. But uh, I, in case we get letters from other um, species, from uh, from other country, other other worlds and planets, uh, I just wanted to, 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 to flag the fact that uh, – um, you know, we, we have to be careful using these uh, these humanist words, you know. I apologise to all our Klingon and half-Klingon listeners. <laughs> uh, I think that there's something in what you're saying, though, Lindsay. I think that we're conditioned to survive and we are conditioned to keep trying and keep fighting and keep trying to draw that last gasp of air if we can. Um and I think that's just part of the evolutionary nature that we have, and I think all species would have it, not just um, human species but others as well, that, that sort of drive to survive and to live. It's a very strong sort of reptile brain thing, if that makes sense. And and not only for, for individuals but I think as a race, so like the things that were coming into my mind, and I'm not sure what they mean, but is – is, is it ever, um, you know, the time to stop fighting climate change? Is, is it ever a time to just sort of sit back and 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 allow it to happen? Is it ever a time to stop fighting evil? Do we ever 
just you know i mean what what does turning the other cheek mean how how is the the fight in that uh, and and sometimes you know i i find myself thinking about god and and uh wondering what is god really like and i mean uh, one of my fundamental presuppositions is that god is love god is good but if god was not good if if i was actually wrong should i um, fight that or should I just give in? You know, I think that whole fighting and giving in thing, I, I find an interesting sort of uh, idea to just play around with in my mind. Mm. It's interesting with God because the pictures we get of God, particularly in the Old Testament and in the New to a, a lesser extent, are quite complex and they're not straightforward. There isn't just good God of love. There just isn't. It's always a mixed thing because if you're truly monotheistic, as the Jewish people ended up becoming towards the end of the writings of the Old Testament in this post-exilic environment, they're saying all other gods are just fake idols. If you are truly monotheistic, then everything good and evil has to emanate from Mm. the same God. I mean, we've got to get out of jail free card with the New Testament and the rise of the Hasatan becomes this actual malevolent deity in his own right. If you want to believe in a devil, then you have to say you're not monotheistic because you've created this other creature that's got divine powers and they may be limited to the earth, but in that sphere, if you listen to Pentecostals, um, you would have that he is capable of wreaking all sorts of havoc because he's got these supernatural powers. So it's... When you're wrestling with theodicy and monotheism, it's a question that we have to look at. Like Second Isaiah quite clearly says in chapter 42, I am God, I am light and I am dark, I am peace and I am strife, if you like. I think they try and put it in, you know, I'm will and I am woe. It's the NRSV tries to make it sound poetic. But it's very clear that if you have one God, then everything emanates from that God. And that's something that we are not good at struggling with as Christians at all because we want an all-loving, all-good God. And if we don't believe in the devil, I'm quite quite sure who we're blaming for evil, probably ourselves and the natural environment. But, um, yeah, it's a very complex question. It isn't straightforward. I found that um, my 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 friends in the role playing area they get this um, a lot a lot more effectively than than my friends in the church do, and I think that's largely because um, when you're role playing, you do actually work with a with a pantheon of gods often, and sometimes you may you may uh, you know work with or, or be a part of a a religion that's actually neutral and or or good or or evil. Um, and so that alignment actually then sets the tone for what is what is permissible, what is what is moral, what is ethical, um, depending on which which God you follow. Um, it, and it's it's fascinating that that really in 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 coming into our more you know as time has gone on, um, the the rise of the monotheistic position has actually become the the more dominant position. Uh, you know in the in the the main religions that we 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 have now there there are there are um i think um very few that have actually held a, a pantheon of gods with a polytheistic perspective um whereas um you know and and now with the the movement into atheism we're actually moving into a non-theistic position um so there's an interesting dynamic there in 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 thinking about that that i think role players understand because they're happy to play with in a way that might be blasphemous or sacrilegious um, in in a in a in a in a um, religious context, possibly. Mm. It, it's interesting, actually, that um, you know, in Battlestar Galactica, the reimagined Battlestar Galactica, uh, it, it's it, it's uh, the good guys who who have a pantheon, and, and it's the bad guys who the, uh, the monotheists, you know, trying to to take over the whole world and and uh, remake it in their monotheistic yes. image. Does that say anything to us about colonisation? Um, but but I think, uh, Elizabeth, I, I agree with what you're saying about theodicy and about, you know, how we want to have our cake and eat it too. And I, I think for me, 
that's part of the attraction of um, uh, process uh, and open and relational approaches to uh, thinking about God is that, that they have another way of thinking about uh, that, that um, uh, how did you put it, that complexity that we see without wanting to jettison the idea that, that God is good uh, at, at core. Uh, so I, I, I find those sorts of uh, ways of thinking about God are, are pricking my interest at the moment. I mean, I did process theolo- theology as part of my studies in college and Maltman was the flavour of the year at that point in time and he's still pretty flavoursome for a lot of people. Um, but I have problems with process theology because they don't address the issue of justice for people who suffer really poorly or who die under the age of 10. Um, It just doesn't address those things. The only thing they can think those process theologians can come up with is it's all going to be fixed at the eschaton. There'll be this eschaton uh, or a parasite or something and God will make it all right. Um, I'm not sure I'm happy with that as the ultimate solution for the suffering that we see on the planet And and for the fact that it's often avoidable suffering and it's often systemically racist in its nature and its cause. And that really deeply disturbs me. And I don't think we grapple with that as a church half well enough, if we're honest. Well, you you could suggest that social justice, uh, climate action, all of these things are futile because in the end God will just reset it all with a new heaven and a new earth as we read in Revelation. So, so um, you know, why why worry about fixing the old one when we know that next Christmas we're going to get we're a new one? We're not getting a new um, one, Will. Look, I <laughs> arrived at the conclusion long ago that's just the figment of the writer of Revelation's imagination. It's just not going to happen. If we don't fix what we've got, we will be extinct by the end of this century. I have to admit and confess, though, like there are times where, and breaking this down into a personal situation, where I might have an old iPhone and I'm now several versions of the iPhone behind and I start to hope. Now, I have a, I have a brand new one, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I start to hope when I have this old iPhone that perhaps something will go wrong with my old iPhone and that I'll have good <laughs> cause and justification to go in and get a new iPhone. And as time goes on, I begin to hope more and more that it would just be easier to just have the old iPhone broken. And so I might become less careful. Um, I might accidentally drop it and I'm not going to be devastated if the screen broke or if things don't work anymore because then I'll go, oh, I can go and get myself the new iPhone 12 now because my phone is broken. There's only a small limp leap between that feeling to the point of actually intentionally breaking my iPhone so I can get a new one. Like, And, and I think that there's this real... I think that is part of the issue with with the process theology idea, and 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 also looking at that Revelation text um, in 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 that kind of predestined way, because it does take all the wind out of our sails for actually trying to produce um, uh, any difference or change in the world. We're I think so, and I don't think there's good evidence to say that that's how God works. God's never worked like that um in terms of how we read God's work in either in history, if you want to look at God working in history, and that's again problematic. But certainly as set out in the biblical text that we have, there's no suggestion that God ever fixes things up like that. The closest we get is the book of Job, where Job gets stuff restored to him at the end. But even that is fraught. I mean when Job is given stuff by God and God says he restores him fourfold or whatever, the, I can't remember the translation. The actual Hebrew word is the same word used of force feeding a goose. So it's like, right, you want restoration? I'll give you restoration. Open your mouth and let me give you gobs of restoration. So it's not actually a good word and there's all sorts of plays going on in Job. It's got a very black humour to it. But apart from that, we just don't get that kind of thing. We're told the time, fix it up yourself. Revelation's the only one that reimagines this whole thing. Um, the other books mm. of the New Testament and Old Testament aren't doing that at all, it's particularly the Old Testament where there's no afterlife. There's no heaven or hell as such for people. There's only heaven where God lives and Sheol is the, the earth or the pit where you're buried. Um, So when you get to the New Testament, you can go to heaven or you can go to hell and there's an eternal life. But apart from Revelation, there's no sense the earth is going to be recreated. 
And when it talks about the kingdom of God, it's something you should be doing. It's something that's kind of here but not here. And you you work, you follow the commands of Jesus to work for something that resembles that to happen. So to rest all our laurels on revelation to me seems to be a really big mistake. So with the book of Job there, Elizabeth, are you suggesting that that there are times when stories might have plot holes in them that actually mean that in order to to push forward one belief system or one one particular narrative or message, they've got to actually, um, you know, leave uh, leave messy unresolved threads um, in there in order to to make that work. Well, of course, it may has to be like that with Job because no one really knows the mind of God. And the God of Job is good and bad comes from the God of Job. He is truly a monotheistic deity. And he's he's almost amoral because he describes an amoral universe where the, the sort of human sense of being entitled to justice and being at the centre of things, he, go, he goes and throws that into the trash bin of divine history because he says everything's important and everything has a consequence and a cause. And um, Job, of course has the native good sense to shut his mouth and not keep arguing with this cosmic whirlwind that's ferociously running around him. But it's not the universe that we like to think of that we see in the book of Job. I I think I'd probably want to cavil a bit at your uh, description of God as amoral. I, I, for, for me, when I read the book of Job, it's actually a, a pastoral answer to the question. And and when you boil it down, all that stuff about uh, 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 did you create the, the universe, blah, 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 is, is a poetic way of saying you can't know. And I'm sorry, there is no easy answer. And that's the pastoral reality when we when we come up against um, uh, uh, you know human human evil. But I don't want to cast that onto God. And I guess uh, what you've highlighted in the, the little conversation is, is two things that I think are really important. Yeah. First is that this world is important and, and what we do does matter. And, and if we want change to happen, we have to be working towards that change. And I absolutely agree with that. And I think that the best of uh, open and relational theology would say exactly the same uh, and, and add to that and that God is not omnipotent in the sort of classical way of seeing that. And so God's way of affecting the world is by actually um, uh, working persuasively with us to do the things that are needful for us to do. So I I absolutely affirm that. But I I think personally, I, I still want to hold on to the 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 idea of something in the eschaton for exactly the reason you highlighted elizabeth which is that regardless of whether we get there and whether we are able to be persuaded by god's um open and relational uh loving drawing of us into being better um it doesn't answer the fact that that um, thousands and millions and and perhaps billions of people have experienced unjust and and terrible lives and and I actually do want uh, some kind of um, way for that to be made right um, because uh, you know I find it hard to deal with the fact that oh well they're just the collateral damage on the way to us you know getting our act together. Well, that's why the New Testament writers developed the, well, not just the New Testament writers, in the intertestamental period, you have the whole concept of an afterlife developing. Because in the Old Testament, you're rewarded in this life or that, or, and that's it, or you're punished and that's it. And Job, of course, questions whether or not that's actually working out well, because clearly it's not. Good people have bad stuff happen and bad people get away with what they're doing. Um and that's why you get the rise of this idea that, well, maybe there's this afterlife and, and that takes away the problem you have with good people having bad things happen because it'll all be okay in the afterlife and that's where your reward is. And that's why the New Testament's full of things like your reward is in heaven. Um, and Jesus says that quite a bit, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. And and the people who've been persecuting you, well, they're all off to hell um, and that's they'll be punished there. So... 
it, it removes that problem of the Odyssey into a different realm, if you like, um, for the afterlife. And I don't, and I mean, it's a, it's a solution, but I don't know that I find that satisfactory either. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's a, I mean, I think this is is entirely uh, an unknowable work of, of in progress. Um, just just like our crew trapped yep. in Sandrine's, waiting for the hammer to fall, um, they they actually have nothing but their assumptions about what it is that's going to befall them to to deal with. Uh, I I did find to take us in a different direction as we're talking about different spiritualities um that in that end place it was nice to see Chakotay drawing on his personal spirituality so in that last final moment he's saying well what am I going to do I'm going to see if I can find my ancestors. Uh, although I, I did struggle with his response to Balana when she said, can I join you? And I thought you'd never ask was kind of a bit, I don't know, were they buying each other a drink in the pub or something? <laughs> it was Weird. a bit strange. But, uh, but, 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 but it, it is yep. interesting that in those moments of, yeah, of confusion yeah. when we actually face the unknowable, um, that that um, that actually drawing from our spiritual self is actually um, one of the things that that we can do and that we do do to give ourselves a, a measure of comfort. And and I think the other thing that it highlighted was that um, uh, it, it's it's actually the human bonds which are perhaps the the deepest uh, spiritual connection. So you know even for Chicote uh, in in his meditation, you know trying to find his ancestors or whatever, um, there's there's that touching bit where Balana reaches out her hand. Uh, and and holds his hand and he grasps her hand tightly and and they are there together and then you pan over to um, uh, uh, Tom and and Kim standing side by side the two friends drawing strength from one another and and then the most touching for me was was Tuvok uh, you know reaching out towards the captain but then stopping and I wondered what does that stopping mean you know like is it is it too familiar or is it you know he doesn't want to admit to having the emotion of of, of need and, and and feeling alone and wanting to touch her or 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 you know wh- why doesn't he touch her what's that about i've interpreted that as that she's the captain and he just decides he just can't take that liberty he can't take that extra step and take that liberty um, because of his respect for rank that's how i interpreted it but you're right, Lindsay, there's a number of frames that could be put around that. And the fact that he wanted to, that he reached out, yeah. almost yeah. has more meaning than any of the other the other real touches. So the 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 uh, the non-touch here actually paradoxically has a greater significance in some ways than the um than the uh, the others the other um gestures. Well, it's about motivation and intent just as much as it is about the gesture quite often, I think. Yep. And I think we saw that very clearly demonstrated by Tuvok's tentative move that he aborts at the last minute. Well, look, one of the things we have discovered today is that um, a poor story with lots of plot holes and uh, <laughs> an uncertain resolution can result in a deeply theological discussion. Uh, and we've actually uh, spent quite a bit of time today um, remaining true to the themes of the episode, but at the same time, um, actually um, finding our way into some really, I think, insightful conversations around um, facing the unknown. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think uh, there's another message for that in, his, in this is that um, we, we shouldn't judge um, a, a, a book by its, by its cover or even its content, that even um, the, the most convoluted of, of writing might actually have some, uh, some nuggets to glean out of it um, in there. So, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's it may be a convoluted piece of writing, but it, it does seem interesting to me that they they um, uh, in discovery basically run exactly the same plot. I don't know if you remember with the the sphere that has all the data that um, you know they think is going to destroy them, but actually it just wants to communicate with them, and in the end, the answer is they have to throw open their shields and allow it to. Uh, to take charge of the vessel, depositing gigaquads of data um, and then throwing them out of the way so that they don't get um, 
get killed when it annihilates itself. I think the interesting thing for me in, in that comparison is that, um, uh, to my memory, the, the gigaquads of data that uh, this anomaly leaves with the crew make no difference and they're never mentioned again, whereas at least with the sphere, the sphere data does come back and, and, and play some uh, interesting and, in fact, critical uh, parts in uh, later discovery episodes. So perhaps they learned from their mistake and thought, well, if we're going to have a, a weird ending where it's all just about a form of communication, at least let's make it matter in some of the episodes to come. I'm disappointed you say that, Lindsay, that we're not going to learn what <laughs> we, we don't get any information. They just move <laughs> on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and look, it's not the first time this kind of, um, you know, um, um, surrender to survive um, thing has been used in Star Trek. There, There's an episode of Next Generation where Dr. Crusher is, is slowly watching all of the members of the crew disappear off the ship. Um, and what she doesn't realise is that she's been pulled into a micro dimension and that everybody who's disappearing is being rescued from it. And as she's actually trying to remain alive and safe from the rescue, she's actually staying inside this ever shrinking micro dimension. So, um, you know, this, this theme of, um, sometimes the best way to survive is to surrender, um, is, is something that Star Trek has used before. And I'm sure we'll see them use it again. Quite possibly. And I can't let the episode uh, go to its uh, death without calling out uh, the, the doctor's channeling of McCoy. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell you, madam? Oh. I am a doctor, not a bartender. Of course you are. Uh, when he says, I'm a doctor, <laughs> not a bartender. I thought that was a good line. These hands do not mop. They do not play pool. They do not pour drinks. I'm a doctor, not a miracle worker. Yeah, I, I, I like that he uh, got, it, got to go to the party. And um, the other thing I wanted to draw attention to was uh, Harry Kim's efficiency at the beginning of the episode where he's uh, listing off to Tuvok all of the things that he's completed and Tuvok is actually saying to him, I see right through this, uh, you want to be at the party, um, perhaps <laughs> it's a good idea for you to go down and check the energy conduits in the transport in the, um, the holodeck. Uh, and uh, so I thought that was actually a, a nice, playful interchange. Um, we got a couple of those nice little playful in interactions in this episode. Yes, we did. It just goes to show that Tuvok is a true Jesuit, you know, managing to send Kim to the party while still having him on duty until the end of the 34 <laughs> minutes that he's meant to yes. be. Yes, I thought Tuvok found a way around his strict um, respect for the rules and, and the uh, regime, I guess, of the of the starship. The other thing I think I, I got out of this episode we haven't talked about is all the shifting of the corridors and, and the decks and things reminded me a little bit of where the church is now. You know, we're not quite sure where we're going. We're trying to find our way somewhere and we've got to watch that we're not at risk at just ending back where we started because that's probably not a good way of trying to find a way forward or find a way that's going to get us out of the current problems and issues that we face so for me all that shifting sands and the sort of the walls of the maze that kept reconfiguring does remind me a bit about how some of our poor congregations feel at the moment they do feel that the sand is underneath their feet and they're in some kind of strange land where they can't see where they're going and you can't really go back and perhaps the death and decline that seems to be coming towards the church may actually not be the uh, the fatal end that um, we think it is, but but by actually yeah. plunging into it, um, that um, we may actually find mission and vision that we didn't know we had before. Sometimes our fear is what can save us. Mm -hmm. That was a line from uh, Barbara Kingsolver, whose writings I like very much. Sometimes what you fear the most will be your salvation. Well, on that note, I think um, that brings us to the end of our, our episode today. Um, please um, continue to engage uh, the way you have been uh, on our Facebook site, Never Odd or Even, the stream of comments and interactions between 
uh, our our audience is something that uh, we love to encourage. That uh, this uh, these podcasts by Never Odd or even uh, Voyager and Deep Faith Nine are, are actually not just uh, so we can hear the sound of our own voice um, on the phones, but actually so that we can generate a, a thinking, reflective community around science fiction and faith. And so I um I, I, we we continually uh, encourage you to participate and to uh, to share your insights and become a part of the community. Uh, and as we mentioned before, thank you to our audience today for um, uh, viewing and, and participating with us. Uh, you've got to see all of the, uh, the, the, the hazards and outtakes, the, the, the ups and downs, the beginnings and ends of the episode. Um, and uh, you, you can get on um, next Wednesday and compare the two um, and, uh, and see whether or not they, um, they, they measure up with each other. Um, oh, you can appreciate the miracle of Will's editing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. The uh, other thing I just wanted to mention in terms of technological advancement is that Lindsay is coming to us today through the FM uh, Riverside FM uh, app uh, on his iPad today after having some computer problems at the beginning of the episode, uh, and uh, that seems to have worked uh, to really, really well. So um, hats off to Riverside FM for continuing to uh, create uh, new uh, ways of doing things uh, and um, and for uh, providing us with the opportunity to record this remotely um, and with um, with a higher level of quality. Yep. Um, that sounded like a promo ad, didn't it? <laughs> yep. Special uh, shout out. Special shout out to our, our listeners on uh, Kronos. Uh, you know, if you're you're a Klingon and tuning into this, do make sure that you uh, leave a comment on uh, Facebook because we want to, uh, you know, show our inclusiveness to uh, all races and species. So this has been uh, Voyager a Theological Journey and uh, uh, that's a copla from me, Will Nicholas. <laughs> I'm not a doctor and I wouldn't mind being a bartender. I'm Lindsay Cullen. <laughs> And I'm Elizabeth Rain, and I think I'm just met myself at the moment, so that's all good. We'll see you next time on Blue.